Welcome to First Thought, a podcast by Galway International Arts Festival. I'm your host, Katrina Crow, curator of the First Thought Talks series. This episode was recorded in September 2020 as part of Galway International Arts Festival's Autumn Edition, which took place against the backdrop of COVID-19 and marked a return to Galway's Black Box Theatre for the first time since March. Inevitably, live events look very different this year. For some talks, we were joined by a socially distanced audience. Others went out to online-only audiences. We thank you now for joining us here on the podcast and becoming yet another member of our extended audience. The first Thought Talk series at GIAF's 2020 Autumn Edition were presented in association with NUI Galway. Welcome to the First Thought Talks strand of the Galway International Arts Festival Autumn Edition. This unusual version of the festival is taking place against the backdrop of the COVID-19 epidemic, which has hit arts events particularly badly. Many people have lost their livelihoods. A lot of venues are left uh, empty for months on end. We're very proud to be able to present a varied and interesting festival and to embed our wonderful speakers for first thought within it. A very warm welcome to our online viewers joining us live for each of the talks. Remember, you can watch them all later on the GIF channel or listen to them on the GIAF podcast series and indeed watch them on the GIAF website so they're very accessible to you. First Thought Talks are presented in partnership with NUI Galway, the festival's education partner. Does culture drive human evolution? Gaia Vince thinks it does. She claims that four evolutionary drivers, fire, language, beauty, and time, are further transforming our species into a superorganism, a hyper-cooperative mass of humanity that she calls homo omnis or homni. Drawing on cutting-edge advances in population genetics, archaeology, paleontology, and neuroscience, her book Transcendence compels us to reimagine ourselves, showing us to be on the brink of something grander or potentially more destructive. To think of humans as a smarter sort of chimp with cool tools is to miss what is truly extraordinary about us. Gaia Vince, author of Transcendence and Adventures in the Anthropocene, will be in conversation with Maureen Kennelly, Director of the Arts Council of Ireland. Hello, good morning everybody and welcome to this conversation with Gaia Vince. And of course, ideally we'd all be together and uh, it would, would have been lovely to meet you Gaia, but we'll, we'll do so at some stage I'm sure, we'll meet in person. Okay. And so over the course of the next hour or so we're going to explore some of the themes of your beautifully written book, Transcendence. Thanks so much for agreeing to talk to us this morning. This is a festival indeed dedicated to transcendence, so it's particularly apt that you're joining us. This this festival is known for the transcendent experiences it's given to hundreds of thousands of people over the last decades. So you're particularly interested in the connection between humans and our planetary environment. Um, In 2015, you became the first woman to win the Royal Society Science Book of the Year for that brilliant book, Adventures on the Anthropocene. And in this book, you beautifully combine history, neuroscience, anthropology, paleontology, sociology, social psychology, just to mention some of the disciplines that you've blended so beautifully together. Um, So welcome, Guy, and thanks so much again for making the time. And first off, I actually want to ask you about your name. I hope you don't mind. Can you tell me how you come to have it? 
Well, first of all, it's my great, great pleasure um, to be to be back in Galway, even though it's only virtually. I wish that I was in this beautiful, beautiful city on the on um, you know on the edge of the, of the sea. It's it's um, in the west of Ireland. It's lovely. Um, so, uh, my name, well, it's um, it's it's the Greek goddess of the earth, and and um, I can thank my father for that because uh, he was studying ancient Greek at the time of my birth, and so I had this this unusual name, um, which which um, you know a bit of nominative determinism perhaps because because uh, the earth has actually been a big passion of mine ever since. We could see then wh wh how strongly that influence came through. It's terrific. So um, tell us what sparked the idea for this book. Well, it's really it's all about connectivity. So um, the fact that this we we live in this human system and um, and we evolved as part of a planetary system and how those two interact and these have been like huge passions of mine. Um, and so so the research that came out of my my book about the Anthropocene, this this idea of a, a planet dominated by humans, the fact that human human systems now drive planetary changes, whether it's river systems or the temperature of the oceans or where a species um, extinct or becomes um, a novel species in an ecosystem. All these things are driven by humans. And it, it really led me to think, you know, why? Why, why humans? You know, um, why is it not chimps that are driving the planet? Why is it not ants? You know, what, what is it about humans? And if you believe, as I do, that um, we evolved as part of um, as part of a long biological process of evolution of of, of, of minuscule changes to DNA over eons. Then what on earth led to this species that became so dominant? And that's what I wanted to understand. I wanted to understand our transcendence from um, every other species to become this extraordinary planetary driver and what led to that and so so that that is that for me is the biggest question you know why us what what did what what made us what is the story of humans and story is something that is a hugely important element in the book. Um, there's a playwright called Enda Walsh, whose work you might know, who's very connected to the festival here. He's got a great play called The Walworth Farce, and there's a great line in it, what are we if not our stories? Um, in fact, he's, he's got a show here, a, a rehearsed reading later this week. So tell us, tell us about the part of story, and, and, and you've got a beautiful reference to, to song lines that, that I'd like you to read. Yeah, well, story, um, I, I mean, I'm talking to Irish people. You, you, you know better than anyone, I'm sure, that, that stories are just really at the heart of, um, of how we interact with the world. Like our brains are cognitively changed and they're, they're um, optimised to understand the world through stories. And that's what really brings us together. It draws us together. It's a community experience. Um, so so I, will, I will read about... I believe that its stories really evolved um, as a as a human survival tool. They 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 have saved us. And and I will read a little bit about um, song lines. Um, so um, I'm, I'm sure some of your listeners will know about um, Bruce Chatwin, um, who who really um, he, he wrote so beautifully about the Australian Aboriginal um, song lines, which. Um, um, so, so you'll be familiar with them. But uh, just to remind us, these uh, song lines are these um, extraordinary oral maps. Um, they are stories. They talk about land, people, culture, 
um, and they are essential to Indigenous Australian identity. Um, uh, yes, and they probably saved the Aboriginal people from extinction. So I'll just read a little bit. Um, Around 20,000 years ago, a trenchant ice age devastated Australia's environment. On the other side of the planet, the Eurasian ice sheet extended four and a half thousand kilometres across and on its own lowered global sea levels by 20 metres, locking up so much water that rains failed across the world. As the droughts became more severe, conditions became impossible for many mammals. Australia's giant mysupials all died out during this time, and the human population crashed by 60%. Those groups that managed to cling on were increasingly isolated in geographically distant refugia across the vast continent, and the situation persisted for thousands of years. Small isolated populations experiencing incredibly challenging environmental conditions deliver the classic ingredients for an extinction. With the gene pool not being sufficiently refreshed, devastating mutations creep in and weaken the population. What should have been an evolutionary dead end, a human population isolated from the rest of the world's people for tens of thousands of years and then split into tiny isolated groups, did not result in local extinction. How did the Aboriginal Australians survive when so many other big animals died out? The song line saved them. During this period, facing especially harsh environmental challenges, people had to rely to a far greater extent on specialised knowledge to find the resources they needed and to navigate different environments. We find grinding stones dating to this Ice Age period, revealing that people were already skilled in processing nardu, which is this, um, this special kind of seed they can make bread from. And the discovery of adult molars with specific wear patterns point to people processing fibres to make fishing nets. These multi-step, complex techniques had to have been stored in the collective memory bank and passed on even when such information was useless, when there was no Nardu growing in the area where the group was living, for example, to be recalled as a lifesaver, perhaps generations later. And the song lines also helped ensure there was a healthy population to host this cultural information. So rather as our selfish genes drive their own propagation. Throughout the terrible ice age, songs and the rituals they describe helped tribes cope with isolation and isolation helped the stories and rituals survive. Without the influx of different people with different ideas, there's less pressure for a culture to change. However, because the song lines could be universally understood, they also allowed for some intergroup connectedness. The song lines operated as mating networks, allowing for the necessary genetic exchange that ensures diversity and staves off evolution, staves off extinction, sorry. Songlines kept the cultural and gene pools healthy, enabling Ice Age Aboriginal culture to find a balance between being separated and connected, which, which had eluded the other large mammals. And as the climate warmed and the continent became more habitable, Aboriginal populations flourished. There were around a million people living in 300 different language groups by the 17th century. So songlines really, their stories and the point of stories is they encode information, they encode cultural information. So 
Just like our, our DNA, our genes, um, uh, our DNA encodes the genes um, that describe how um, cells are made, how body parts function and um, how we become a human. So the uh, so stories and song lines in particular, but the stories that um, that you pass on between each other, um, encode cultural information in a really easily transmittable, easy rememberable way, um, uh, and and help that that transmission of information among the population and, and down through generations. And that's it's a device. It's a it's a tool for passing on uh, cultural information and that's why they're so valuable. And how is that collective memory bank created then? So another really important thing about being human is, is the fact that we are not limited as other animals are to um, cooperating just within our gene group, within our families. We have these much wider social circles which include complete strangers. Um, and so we need to cooperate, we need to trust and we need to rely on. Humans absolutely have to rely on each other. We are nothing without, without our, um, our social family. Um, and so, so in order to cooperate with all these um, people, in order to find those bonds, we use stories. We, it gathers us together. It, um, when, we, when we hear a story being told, one mind is speaking to all of our all of our minds and we all um we are all in the same space together we are we are acting as a family we are acting very cooperatively in our heads at that time it's extremely important for um for bonding for drawing us together and, and we've seen we've seen this in every single culture and from the dawn of of um of, of time from the dawn of our cultural um, history Something else that you focus on in the book is the phenomenon of, of copying. Can, can you talk to us a bit about that, how that has allowed us to evolve? Yeah, so, so copying is, is at the heart of um, evolution. It's only by um, copying what came before that we, that we transmit that information. So with, with genetics, um, those genes are copied, um, our DNA is copied. Um, through cultural evolution, that cultural evolution, that cultural information is copied. Um, and so we have to be able to copy faithfully. So if you're shown how to make something, if you're shown how to make a hand axe or um, another tool, um, you, you have to be able to copy all those steps in order for that for that cultural um, process to, to continue down the generations. And for those tiny little changes, those little mutations, those little innovations to take place um, so that you get that diversity and you get that evolution, you get that change over time. Um, and, and it is perhaps because humans have these bigger, smarter brains and are able to copy faithfully and to copy multi-steps faithfully that we, that our culture is able to evolve. Chimpanzees can't, can't copy as faithfully many, um, many steps and so their cultures are, are very limited to things that they could innovate for themselves or they're very simple, very, very simple cultures. Um, which brings us on to, to language and you quote the Turkish-English writer Elif Shafak about how language um, expands our brain. I think that's, that's how you put it. But you have a beautiful piece in, in that section of the book about whistling in Lagomera that I'd love you to read. Sure, yes. Um, 
High in the rocky mountains of La Gomera in the Canary Islands, a duet is playing out. The rugged, steep-sided cliffs of this volcanic island are cut deep ravines and separated by wide valleys. And yet, from far, far away, clear notes pierce the subtropical air. I wait in silence, listening over birdsong and the occasional fussing and bleating of goats picking their way over stones. Then, from somewhere just above me, comes the tuneful reply. The people here communicate across the unforgiving landscape in an ancient whistling language called Silbo that carries conversation as far as eight kilometres from mountain to mountain between remote farms and villages. As one old goat herd says, it's cheaper and faster than using a mobile phone and it never lacks signal. Silbo is now taught in La Gomera schools, although many children learn it along with Spanish as a mother tongue inserting a knuckle into their mouth to make the sounds, or learning to perform a, a particular tongue fold. It is like birdsong that blackbirds have been known to mimic dialogue. <laughs> so I absolutely love that. Um, so talk to us a little bit about just the power of language and how, how it helps us evolve. So language, of course, is, is peculiar to humans. It's this extraordinary tool that, um, that, that we alone evolved, certainly in this sort of complexity. And again, um, so our brains are, are, um, have evolved to be able to do this, as well as our, our, the rest of our anatomy, and, and they sort of evolved together. A lot of this, a lot of this, this whole thing, as I was talking before about, um, it's about connectivity, it's about feedbacks. So as our as our culture evolved um, with language, so our brains evolved um, and adapted to, to um, enhance that cultural process and our, the rest of our anatomy, our tongues, um, our uh, voice boxes and all of those sort of co-evolved, feeding back on each other. And language enables us to pass on uh, cultural information in in, in an incredibly um, precise way and to many people at once. So with copying, um, I have to have people right next to me seeing what I'm doing. With language, I can talk to an enormous group and that message can then be sent through other people speaking. Um, I mean, it seems completely obvious, but actually it's, it's an incredible process that only humans can do. Um, as with everything um, cultural in humans, it has evolved in concert with, um, with our biological evolution and with environmental, our environmental evolution. So um, language of, languages themselves have also evolved under environmental pressures. So um, the languages that we, so languages have evolved to be more easily understood, more easily um, heard. So grammar changes to make that possible and the environmental influences also impact on the types of languages. So languages spoken in warm, wet, tropical, woody areas um, contain um, fewer, fewer consonants um, because they, they don't transmit as well in that sort of environment, whereas um, English and Georgian, which have not evolved in, in those sorts of environments, um, burst with cons consonants. And it's the same with um, tonal languages. They, um, they evolve differently in different places. I mean, so, so whistling languages have evolved 
really um, for that kind of environment. So it's for where normal speech just doesn't transmit over valleys, over um, long distances. So whistling has, um, has evolved. And in parts of Africa, um, uh, drumming languages, it's the same thing. So drumming languages in which you can encode um, very, very complex messages. Um, we know about um, sign language as well, which again um, can be seen. Um, so um, the Plains Indian Sign Language, for example, across um, across North America's indigenous population, allowed allowed um, information to be transmitted across huge distances that um, would be, you know, an actual person would have had to make that transmission. You know, now we have mobile phones we have you know i'm talking to you via a video link um and i think that will exert its own pressure so we will see um a reduction in some of the languages some of the techniques and technologies like for example the whistling language these will start to die out i think because um because the evolutionary press is um has changed Oh, that's beautiful. It, it reminds me of uh, Seamus Heaney has this gorgeous poem, Anna Horish, where he talks about a Val Meadow in it. And I, I must send it to you, maybe. It might have been sparked by that. I love Seamus Heaney. Please do send it. <laughs> I will indeed. Um, you, you, empathy is a theme that comes through in the book in a huge way, which is a subject very close to my heart. And um, there's a quote that I read, I think it was Matt Hague in The Guardian recently quoted James Baldwin, who he says that you think your pain and heartbreak are unprecedented in the world and then you read. And uh, you talk about how reading can increase empathy. I'd love to... You'll love you to dive into that a bit more with me. Yeah, so um, we kind of intuitively know that, don't we? Um, that, that when we read a book, the reason it's um, especially uh, fiction, the reason and, and poetry and, and song, all of these, these forms of language, when we, when we um, come across them, the reason that they resonate with us is because we are empathizing, we are believing characters. And um, this is a process which actually helps us to empathize beyond the page and and there have been studies for example there was one study um which um people were were given um novels to read um and then the control group was given just information to read and afterwards um the teacher just um you know accidentally dropped um, her pencils on the floor and those who had been reading the novels um, were the fastest and the quickest to to help pick up the pencils because because they'd had to go through that process on the page um, in their heads of empathizing you know when we read we, we enter this this liminal space where 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 we are we are at one with the characters we we create this world and we create this um we all believe at the same time in this in this um, space together, and that is that is a process. That is a practice. You know, if you practice tennis a lot, your arm um, it becomes intuitive. You don't have to think about what you're doing with your arm. It's the same with empathising. You do it enough, and um, and it becomes more natural. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, and and sto and storytelling. We were talking about storytelling earlier, and I know that's so central. Um, that's so central to um, Irish culture. Um, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it's the only country where I've been in a pub and I've been approached um, almost immediately by gentlemen bearing poems um, <laughs> on little pieces of paper. Um, um, again, you know, um, 
across cultures, storytelling is so important that, um, that there's a group of hunter-gatherers in the Philippines called the Agta. And um, storytelling is so important um, to, to um, this culture that um, people who are good at telling stories are more likely, that it's more valued than hunting skills. And, you know, hunting is, is how these people obtain their calories. It's literally a survival skill. And yet storytelling is, they have 80% more children, they're, they're, they're more successful, these actor people if they're good at storytelling. So it obviously, it goes beyond just um, a light form of entertaining entertainment. We value storytelling. And one of the reasons is because of this empathy, because empathy is what brings us together and we are so reliant um, for our survival. Um, as individuals, we are reliant, not on our own skills as hunters, but on our group skill. Our survival depends on our group. And so the more tightly and the better bonded our group is, the more our culture is able to um, disseminate amongst that. And the more we are able to, um, the, the more we are able to draw, to draw upon all of the um, benefits and the protections our group offers us. So storytelling is really at the heart of that. And I think it's Rachel Clark's book that um, talks about storytelling in medicine and how how much stories, you know, as you say, they save lives, that this is now just becoming more and more appreciated and understood by people. And she's, she's incredible. Um, yeah, how she's, how she's, um, it's, I mean, she's incredible anyway, um, but, but how she, how she really um, is able to, to show as, as, a, as a doctor, how important stories are to our survival, directly our, our medical survival. Um, it is, it is absolutely, it is absolutely crucial and it, and it gives us that sense of community because because we depend on the group, because we depend on others that we're not related to. We have to form this um, this kind of cultural family. So um, although we're not related by uh, directly by blood to to um, to our, our fellow humans, we we have to act as though we are through culture because we are so dependent and, and our whole evolutionary process has driven us to um, to be able to cooperate better with large numbers. You know, much, no other animal does this. No other animal does this to the extent that we do it. We, we, de we depend entirely on this, um, this wider social circle. And so, so many of our, um, the way we dance, our rituals, everything we do, um, in, in one sense or another, is about developing that, um, that camaraderie. We, we could be here for hours talking about language, but I wanted us to yeah. kind of touch on the other um, themes. So fire, beauty and time, not time, are the other themes that, that, that you touch on. So tell us, you talk about outsourcing energy, talk to us about fire. And how that's that's allowed us to yeah so 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 all life forms are limited by how much energy they can they can harness and so um so that's why um a blade of grass is not running around hunting down lions because it's getting what energy it can from the sun um which is um very sort of low density energy so if you then if you then eat that grass um you get a more concentrated form of energy so we're all limited by how much energy we can eat. Um, now humans managed to flip 
the uh, relationship by harnessing an artificial form of energy. So, so once we learnt to make fire, we were able to take the meat that we had, or the potatoes, or or the vegetables that we had, and in, and um, and uh, cook them. So the fire's energy is doing the work um, of our guts. It's pre-digesting the food for us. So instead of spending hours and hours um, uh, hunting and then hours and hours digesting, I mean, lions, cows spend so long chewing the card or um, in the lion's case, just lying with this massive gazelle in its gut like this for days. Um, we are able to, um, to get the same amount of energy just um, through, well, in my case, say you flip a can of baked beans, you cook it on a hob, and there you are, you've got the same amount of calories as took um, a lion perhaps a day or a chimpanzee a day to produce and, it, and in a second. And that is because we outsource our energy to the fire and we also um, outsource our energy to our group. So I'm not hunting down those beans, I'm not growing those beans, I'm not processing it, I'm not collecting the energy, the, the fuel for my fire. I'm relying on my much greater society which has taken you know, thousands of years of evolution to produce that situation. So fire, once we, um, uh, once we were able to create fires and once we were able to rely on fires, um, it, it, it meant that our brains could grow bigger. So uh, we, we, we relied on, we, we used fires early in our evolutionary history um, before, you know, millions of years ago. Probably the first people to actually make their own fires were was homo erectus two million years ago and by doing that it meant it meant that the brain of a homo erectus was much larger than um than uh than her ancestors brains and then by the time it came to us and neanderthals we were using fire all the time so our brains really are the, at the maximum they can be to fit through the uh human pelvis and yeah so with this so fire enabled us to switch the, the ratio um, of energy. And this, this pandemic, pandemic has us all kind of having a sense of the world standing still, you know, that we're holding our breath, essentially. Um, and I absolutely loved the, um, the story of the young French geologist who wanted to see if he contained a timepiece. Would you mind telling us about that? Yeah, so this is uh, Michel Cifra, and he, so time is this kind of external um, force on our life, but it's also invented um, by our brains. So there is the time in terms of, there is the way the sun, the, the passage of the sun over the earth, the rotation of the earth. So we see that as the sun rising and falling, we see the movements of the stars. So there's this external time, which, which actually physically happens. And then there is our mind time, which is something our, our brains invent. Um, and Sifra really wanted to try and understand if, if what time really meant, if we could keep time ourselves. And so he, he underwent this completely, actually crazy expedition into a mountain, um, into a glacier, um, underneath a glacier, into a mountain, into a sort of dark cave, along a passageway and he ran a telephone line down into that passageway and he had some, some um, researcher friends stationed out manning the telephones and he was there for 
um, I think it was about two months underground um, alone um, with just his food supplies with no contact and he would phone in his um, pulse his uh, what time he thought it was um, whether he was awake or asleep um, how long he his nap took and all that sort of thing and it took him a matter of days before he was completely out of sync he had no idea what time it was you know um, 12 hours would pass um, for him in a matter of you know three minutes or vice versa he was completely out of sync so really that was the that was the the basis the foundation for the field of chronology of, of, of understanding our uh, chronobiology sorry of understanding the how our biology responds to um to the natural cycles and it turns out that cells in our biology are constantly updating our mind time by seeing the by seeing the light and so that's how we keep in sync and that's how we um we sleep for our whatever eight hours a day <laughs> i wish mm. um, <laughs> <laughs> but but have some idea of the time and once once we don't have that connection with the with the real time our mind has no idea anymore has no idea what's going on and, and that's i think that's really interesting because because our mind time is very very vulnerable to everything things like shock can completely change you know how um, when something happens that's really devastating, it, we see it happening in slow motion. Time seems to stand still. Um, and then it seems to move really fast in other periods. I think with this lockdown, um, our perception, certainly this year, the perception of time has, has completely changed for me. You know, I think of the before times, <laughs> you know, of January and um, February, it feels almost like a different century. It feels like another time altogether. And we seem to have been in this very slow period. And then at the same time, I sort of think, is it already September? How did that happen? Um, so time is very elastic and it's very dependent on biological signals, um, things like cortisol, things like our hormonal changes. Um, at age, time for a five-year-old passes in a completely different way as it does for um, a fifty-year-old. So, um, so it's really interesting. Um, and I use I actually use the time section of my book because because this is perhaps the first and the most fundamental external um, measurable objective source um, way of seeing the world that we have so when I was talking about stories that's very um, that's very subjective we um, we invent the world and we invent our demons and our monsters and our saviors and our gods we invent all of these um, and we bind ourselves to rituals and to this way of thinking and this way of explaining the world whereas with time with when you have to um, time your harvest when you have to know um, after conception, how long it will take before a baby appears when um, you know your your menstrual cycle, all of these things these are objective different ways of understanding the world and and this objective way really it 's at the heart of science you know um, so the first scientists really they are the people that first looked up at the stars from from um, from you know we we look up and we see the moon just as the people in Africa did um, 
100, 200,000 years ago, we're seeing the same moon um, and we're wondering in the same way and we measure its waxing and waning just as they did. And, and they were, when they were doing that and when they were measuring that as surely they did, um, we are, they are, they are doing science, just um, we are doing it. We have we have um, inherited that same process. The Lascaux cave paintings with their astronomical um, drawings. Um, it's the same. It's the same process that we have. Um, we have a, has enabled us to then go to the moon to set satellites into the sky. It's it's a continual cultural evolution that goes back human history, um, three hundred thousand years. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And um, have you? Have you any idea how we will treat time because of this pandemic in the future? How it, will it change our attitude to time when things go back to normal? Oh, normal. <laughs> I guess, um, whatever that is. I think, I think um, what this pandemic, what I hope this pandemic will show is the is the importance, you know, our human cognition is not, it doesn't is not um, optimized for understanding certain things. We're not we're not biologically optimized for understanding things like um, um, exponential increases, for example, these logarithmic scales. This idea that um, it, it's a very hard concept to understand. The idea that an infection rate that is doubling every second, every day, or doubling every day, um, will lead very very quickly to a phenomenally high number. Um, and we've known that, we've known that for a long time. There was that, um, was it one of the, I can't remember, was it, was it um, one of the Arabian Nights or um, stories, but the, the idea there was um, somebody won a, won a prize um, in, this, in, one, in some ancient story. Someone won a prize and they said, what would you like? You can have all this gold. And he said, you know what? I would like um, a chessboard and then I would like one grain of rice on the first square. And then the second square, double that. The third square, um, double that all the way. And the king was like, what a humble request. Yes, fine, no problem. And of course, halfway through the chessboard, he used all the rice in the kingdom because that's how exponentials work and that's how infection rates work. And that's why we have to, um, we have to understand um, that we have to act early on these things. And that's, that's this plastic idea of time that we, uh, we can't get our heads around because because the cognition of exponentials is very, very hard for us. We, we, don't, we don't see that in our everyday understanding, so we haven't evolved to understand it, and yet it's so crucial. So in terms of that, I think um, our understanding of time might change, how quickly, um, how quickly things can change when they, when they threaten um, our way of life. Mm. In, in and also we have to think differently about time, about the long, the long future, which is coming much, much quicker. I mean, we're talking at a time when the whole of the west coast of America is burning, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, this is not a huge surprise. People, scientists have been warning about climate change and it's always been somewhere in the future, bad things will happen, but it's the future. And the future is this kind of, um, it's this place we can sort of peer into, but, but we don't need to worry about it too much. It's almost an afterlife. And yet it's not an afterlife anymore. It's, it's, it's our life. It's not generations ahead. It's right now. Um, and so our concept of global planetary change, of climate change, of these huge um, 
exponential challenges. Um, it's coming much sooner to us. And I think the, all these things are threatening our understanding of time basically passing slowly with things containing, con continuing normally and then maybe gradually changing imperceptibly so we don't realise that things have changed. And that's how a lot of things happen. That's how a plant grows. You know, you don't, you, you can't, if you watch it, you can't see it growing, but then in a few days you might get a flower. Well, now what we're seeing is, is a much more rapid form of completely um, of, of um, extreme change. And um, I think this is a wake up that time, time can happen differently for us. In your section on beauty, you talk about epidemics and wars shaking us out of ourselves and uh, enabling us to connect in different ways. What do you think the current pandemic is teaching us about ourselves? So, well, first of all, we created this pandemic. Our human systems created this pandemic. This is um, an organism that lives, that lived, this virus um, lived, it comes from um, a virus that uh, lived in the heart of a rainforest and infected animals of rainforest. But because we now um, are changing the planet and we, we are extracting things out of that rainforest. And why are we doing that? You know, it's, it's almost certainly connected to pangolins, right? Which is um, a small, quite a cute creature, um, which has value. And that's something, that's something peculiarly human as well. This idea of valuing things which are valueless essentially for our survival. You know, um, the reason we like pangolins is because it has been decided by um, by a community that pangolin scales are highly valuable. I mean, this is mad. It's the same madness that decides that gold, a metal that is completely inert, very soft and not very useful for anything, is incredibly valuable. It's exactly the same mechanism. We decide that use things that are useless to our survival because they are beautiful are valuable to us. It's the same idea. So pangolin scales, it's, it's essentially keratin. It's the same material as our fingernails, but you don't um, people selling fingernails, uh, clippings for any value at all. It's exactly the same protein. Um, so, so it has been decided um, culturally that that um, is very valuable. So therefore these animals have been taken out of their natural environment and that gives an opportunity to a virus that used to infect that animal to skip to humans and then it, um, and then it evolved um, to become transmissible um, among humans and to infect humans. And because of the human system, because we are now globally connected, we, have, we, we operate as this huge superorganism on the planet. This organism then has this opportunity to skip across the human systems that we have created. And that, effect, that then affects our economic system, um, shutdowns, it affects different sectors of society differently because of our human system. Um, it's it's incredible it, what it's done essentially. So so my whole book and my last book it's essentially about these the interactions between human systems and planetary systems. That's what I'm fascinated with, and this pandemic has made that visible. It's made that immediately visible the way they're all connected and how it works. You can see how one virus affects um, car sales in Japan. You know, it, it, it affects electricity um, output and the type of electricity we use in the US. Um, it affects um, the pollution level in London. I mean, it's, it's, you see that interaction. It's 
it's made visible in a very, very short period of time. Um, but it's also shown us that, you know, our Achilles heel is our, is our connectivity, but it's also, it's also our salvation because it's through the cooperation of, um, of nurses and doctors working together of despite all kinds of, um, political, um, defenses between and antagonisms between various countries science and researchers have collaborated and cooperated as never before on trying to find solutions, on trying to make vaccines, on trying to make um, uh, uh, treatments for this. Um, people have come together to help feed um, vulnerable people in order to, they have stayed locked down. This is against everything we've evolved to do all of our behaviours, all of our evolved behaviours, all of our um, the way we interact, which is by socialising, we have voluntarily cut ourselves off from all of not because somebody is going around with a gun saying, I will shoot you if you don't stay in your home, but because we cooperate to save each other, to help each other, we know that it's the right thing to do. It brings out really what an extraordinary species we are that this quickly we can change our behavior at personal cost you know because for a lot of us the um the risks of the infection are actually not that high and yet we know that there are vulnerable members of society and we are protecting those complete strangers we may never meet you know so that is the kind of creature we are and that that i believe is what will prevail out of all of this somewhere you referred to a kindness contagion and uh, which is just such a lovely concept. Um, how is kindness going to help in, in our future evolution? Yeah, well, we have evolved to be kind and to respond to it. Um, if, you, if you help somebody, if you're kind to somebody, they are then more likely to be kind to someone else. You can see that in a lot of different studies. For example, at, um, if you're at a junction and you let a car out, that car is more likely to let another car out um, further down the track. Um, it is contagious and it's, I mean, we know why it's evolved. It's evolved so that um, we live in harmonious societies that can prosper rather than constantly um, fighting each other. Um, and it's what will bring us out of this when in times of crisis, um, we do fall back on that because, because there is a threat to our group we fall back on kindness and um, we help each other. Yes, of course, there are members of society which, which, um, which don't do that, but they are in a minority, I think. Um, it's unfortunate if that minority is actually your leadership, as, uh, <laughs> as in the UK we're experiencing at the moment. But, um, but you know, that's not the case for the tea shop. That's not the case um, for, for other places around the world. Um, New Zealand is an excellent example of that. Um, Kindness will prevail. Good. I agree. Um, I've been monopolising you somewhat, and I think we have some questions maybe online. I think they're just there's a, a question coming through there because I was going to ask you then. I'm I'm a I'm a fan girl of the book, as you can tell. But uh, I've been going back to the final kind of closing pages again and again. So um, I was going to ask you. Oh yeah. So we have a question. I think. Yeah, so we've got it. We've got three questions here. Um, the first one is: is given how competitive we are now, will humanity humanity be more competitive or more competitive? Well, sorry, will humanity be more cooperative 
or mo more competitive in the future? So, yeah, there's this constant um, tension, isn't there, between um, cooperation and comp competing to survival for survival. And what we've done is we we have cooper we have competition through cooperation. So the most because our personal survival relies on our group survival, it's the most uh, cooperative groups win in the um, in competition um, with each other. And we see that, for example, um, in groups like armies, um, this this idea that they have to, you know, they go through initiation ceremonies and they're sort of tested um, because they both because the um, army is only as strong as they are tightly bound to each other that's how it works and that's how it works in our broader society as well the more we care about each other and the more we look after each other the more we will um win. so um i don't see that changing um myself i think i think um what's happening is we're becoming more of a global um um, global society where we're acting more as a I, I say I say that we are evolving towards um, this sort of super organism of humanity and we're we're acting as this this huge um, society and the more cooperative our society is the more we are able to face these extreme challenges of global climate change biodiversity loss of uh, poverty and inequality all these things that we face I think we will do much better at if we cooperate um, if we compete um that that leads to a breakdown essentially of the cooperation and i think um i hope that doesn't happen you know because i think that's cooperating there there is competition in some areas of this which is what leads to this kind of this evolution by natural selection of ideas of of technologies you know the 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 weak the ones that don't perform as well fall away um so, so there is always some competition in there. It's not a kind of either or, but the general idea of um, caring for each other, I think, is, is our strength. So once the current pandemic fizzles out, uh, do you think we will go back to our previous ways or do you see there being changes in our behaviour? I, I don't think we, we will go back to life as it was. I think there are going to be some fundamental changes um, to the way we live our lives. Um, this has been very traumatic for a lot of people, not, not just people who've um, lost loved ones um, and people who are suffering, you know, they, they survived the pandemic perhaps with mild symptoms, but they are left with this, um, it's been called long COVID, these, um, these changes to um, their physiology, their heart and um, other things. I mean, I, I know people who had very, very mild symptoms and, um, but also suffered stroke. Um, or, or heart failures and all sorts of things like that. It's a really serious, horrible thing. So in terms of that, I think there's going to be a long legacy to this. Um, but also in terms of how we see our society, what we think of as important, you know, is it the bankers? Is it the hedge fund managers? Or is it the um, people, the delivery drivers for our supermarket who actually kept us in food? Or is it the nurses and the care home assistants who are paid very, very little, but who looked after um, the most vulnerable members of our society. I think it's led to a big rethink of, um, of priorities. And I think we might be, as a society, less willing to tolerate um, antisocial behaviours from, from the, um, the elite in our society. 
Um, and also we've all had a taste of what life could be like with um, low air pollution levels, with low congestion on our roads. And I think we quite liked it. I think we have one final question. And the last question is, has the future arrived? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, the future keeps arriving, right? It's, it's always arriving. The future is always arriving. Um, <laughs> I don't really know what that means. Um, <laughs> the future is just a concept, isn't it? So um, um, for an old person, this is the future. For um, a small child, the future is a long way ahead, but also at the week. So. <laughs> That's it. It's all, all about perspective. Um, yeah. Gaia, thank you so much. Is, is that another edition of your book I see behind you in another? It, it looks like a different cover. So this is the US edition. Okay. Oh. <laughs> I really like the, um, the, different, the different covers. This one, yeah. this is the US edition which is um, such a beautiful yeah. cover it's as well beautiful I'm really yeah. lucky and I, I guess lots of your events were cancelled lots of your in-person events have been changed yeah like totally um the whole yes from march onwards everything was cancelled hay um edinburgh uh cheltenham just one after the other it was it all the, I, I was looking forward to going to lots of different galway i'd have loved to be there in person it's yeah. amazing um yeah it's it's you know <laughs> i i didn't suffer um a terrible effects of covid at all so i can't really moan about it but it's been um you know the book came out and then just immediately shut down so um so it's it's really really hard for writers and, yeah. and creative people generally mm. you know for um literary festivals for there is something really, really precious as a writer when you when you you're sort of sealed in your office and everything's um, takes place in your head <laughs> invisibly. Um, to have that, to have that uh, wonderful period at the end where you actually meet people who have sort of shared the ideas because they've read your book and 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 can talk to these people and you meet other writers and it's it's really I I really love festivals. I love that camaraderie between other writers and readers and um, it's sharing that space. Um, so it's, yeah, it's incredibly sad. And I, I really, really worry um, for the whole art sector, you mm. know, with theatres closed, art galleries sort of open, but hardly museums, all the writers' festivals. Um, yeah, it's really, really hard time. And we need this more than ever. You know, we need, we need that um, way of testing and sharing ideas at the moment. Yeah, if, I mean, the pandemic has certainly shown us how much people need or, and cling to the arts. Um, so it's kind of paradoxical in a way that it, it's now, it's, it's kind of taken this to make the argument that this is why they're such a vital part of society. Um, and I do my heart breaks for you and for all those other writers who, who've lost out on so much, you know, and I, and I hope that people support, obviously, what you do. I mean, it's great that at least people can still buy and read your book, you know, but and a, a time will come again when you'll come to visit Galway, I hope, and, and other festivals in Ireland, because there's, there's a great network of festivals here. But it's a fascinating yeah. book and congratulations. It's, it's, it's a really inspiring read. And as I said, the... So congratulations to you and thank you so much. And uh, I was hoping you might close us out by, by reading those final two paragraphs. I think they're just gorgeously inspiring. They're like a, a clarion call to me. I've certainly found them. 
like that in the last few months. So thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to um, to this festival because, you know, as you say, it, it has been really hard. And, um, you know, books are, I think people get the impression that, that because everybody can write to a certain extent, they get the impression that, you know, that it's just something you kind of knock off. But it's actually years of, of um, thought and work and um, difficulty. And then to to shut down the sharing of that is... is um, it's hard and, and there are so many writers really struggling and I, I really um, I really want to say go out, buy their books, um, talk about them, <laughs> share their ideas, um, yeah. read that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yes, um, so I, I will read this. We are now at a point of unprecedented genetic, cultural and environmental power as a species and we are linked to virtually every other person on earth. We are embodied individuals trapped in a temporal existence, but we are also network data streams, memories and influences, and part of a grander humanity. Our decisions today have far-reaching consequences that imbue us with responsibility to become good ancestors, to take the long view and time travel forward to imagine the well-being of billions of people whose lives will be lived in the world we are currently making. Centuries ago, leaders of the indigenous North American Iroquois people created seven generation stewardship, instructing people to consider the impact of every decision on their children seven generations into the future. In the precious few decades that Earth is ours, while we enjoy the gardens planted by our ancestors, we must not steal the shade from our descendants. As I write this, high in the night sky, a very constant shooting star has crossed my window. It is the International Space Station, an extraterrestrial home in space, permanently occupied by the only life form capable of doing so. Through hundreds of thousands of years of human collaboration, we have achieved the most incredible magic. We are all part of something extraordinary. Our iterations of the body of our collective culture takes us in unpredictable directions. They create for us new problems, but also, we hope, their solutions. After all, there is nobody but us. <laughs> well, thank you, and that that is transcendent writing it's a transcendent book so thank you so much Gaia thanks to everybody for tuning in thanks to everybody at the festival to Katrina Crow for asking me to be involved to Paul Fahey and John Crumlish and all their fabulous team for putting together such a, a brave and captivating program so uh, buy the book it's absolutely it's wonderful it is it is transcendent as I said so thank you so much Gaia and, and uh, we'll meet soon I hope thank you good morning Thank you, thank you, and enjoy the rest of the festival. It's, it's a great lineup. Thank you for watching that fascinating discussion on cultural evolution here at First Thought Talks in Galway. Remember, you can see it again on the GIAF website uh, or on its YouTube channel or Facebook page. Join us again at 12.30 to hear a discussion about one of the most pressing issues of the moment, Brexit and Northern Ireland, which will involve Glenn Patterson and Claire Hanna. And uh, profound thanks to Gaia Vince and Maureen Kennelly for that wonderful conversation we just heard. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to First Thought. For more, visit the Talks page on Galway International Arts Festival's website, giaf.ie.